This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI TV. Good morning. It's Wednesday, September the 14th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Branding failure alerts. That's two more dollars in the bin. We're only on AMI-tv. We're not on AMI-audio anymore. Oh, Dave can't be trusted with anything it's only my second real flub up so that that's that's not too bad coming up on the show today emily maxwell from real abilities will share details about their new professional development series for filmmakers with disabilities we'll introduce you to our newest contributor kevin shaw you may know him from ami tv's mind your own business kevin's a pretty interesting dude been involved in a lot of tech startups over the years so talk startups and entrepreneurship with Kevin and see where the conversation takes us. And we're going to assemble a new round table with a couple familiar voices to you. Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller will join me. We'll do a round table discussion on housing issues in Canada, starting with accessibility. And of course, you cannot talk about housing in this country without addressing affordability. Affordability, also our top story of the day, the cost of living. The federal government announced it will double the GST rebate for six months. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made the announcement and explained the rationale. The first element of our plan is to deliver relief to millions of Canadians by doubling the GST tax credit for six months. This will provide hundreds of dollars of support to Canadians, including half of all families and more than half of all seniors in the country. Trudeau says when Parliament resumes, his government will also introduce a temporary dental care benefit for most families with children under 12 and provide a one-time $500 payment for low-income renters. Lindsay Teds, an associate professor of economics at the University of Calgary, says that putting money in the pockets of lower-income Canadians should not further destabilize the market. So it is targeted to low-income individuals who are probably the ones most unable to um, dip into savings or other things to um, uh, uh, pay for these increased costs. So it's unlikely to fuel inflation as a result. Speaking of inflation, no related story, the United States released their August inflation numbers yesterday. There was a decrease month over month of 0.8%, so deflation month over month of 0.8%, but of course, year over year, still looking at an 8.3% overall inflation rate. A significant drop in gas prices is what drove that number. And while we're talking about money, a new study finds the pandemic has prompted many Canadians to rethink their financial goals. Adam Burns looks at the findings. 
The study was conducted on behalf of CIBC in early August. Researchers asked about 1,500 randomly selected Canadians about their financial planning habits, both now and over the last two years. About two-thirds said they're re-evaluating their priorities as COVID-19 restrictions come to an end. More than half said their current financial position is holding them back from making changes, and three-quarters say they're focused on smaller, more practical goals. Adam Burns, The Canadian Press. Toronto. Let's look abroad where Ukrainian troops are keeping up pressure on fleeing Russian forces. Charles de Ledesma has the latest. As the advance continues, Ukraine's border guard services say the army has taken control of Vovchumsk, a town just two miles from Russia, seized on the first day of the war. Russia has acknowledged it's recently withdrawn troops from areas in the northeastern region of Kharkiv and also from Melitopol, the second largest city in Ukraine's southern Saporizhia region. It's not clear, though, if the Ukrainian blitz, which unfolded after months of little discernible movement, could signal a turning point in the nearly seven-month-old war. I'm Charles Diladesma. And of course, energy has been one of the major fallouts of the war in Ukraine. So European Commission president is proposing electricity market reform as high prices hit households and businesses across the EU. Ursula von der Leyen says the reforms are required to reduce the influences of natural gas on the way that prices are set. The dominant influence of gas on the price of electricity. And this is why we will do a deep and comprehensive reform of the electricity market. Russia has already cut gas supplies partially or entirely to 13 EU member countries. Now let's come back to Canada. We'll talk about the Queen's passing for a moment. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says next Monday, September 19th, will be a federal holiday to mourn Queen Elizabeth II on the day of her state funeral. Trudeau says there is still coordination that has to occur with provinces. We will be working with the provinces uh, and territories uh, to try and see that we're aligned on this. There are still uh, a few details to be worked out, uh, but uh, uh, declaring an opportunity for Canadians to mourn uh, on Monday uh, is going to be important. Spoiler alert, the provinces and the federal government were not aligned, and the result is a total hodgepodge. So allow me to try and walk you through what we know as of right now. All four Atlantic provinces, so New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland and Labrador, as well as PEI, will have a holiday. Full out, full stop, holiday in the Atlantic provinces. BC Premier John Horgan states that his province will be closing public school, post-secondary institutions and most crown corporations. Manitoba will be closing non-essential government services and offices for the day on Monday, but schools and childcare facilities will remain open and function as usual. In Quebec, there will be no holiday. In Ontario, there will be no holiday. There will be a moment of silence at 1 p.m. Eastern time. In Saskatchewan, there will be no holiday. And Alberta has yet to indicate its plans for Monday. So let me walk you through that hodgepodge one more time because I may have gone a little too quick for you. So let's start. All four Atlantic provinces will have a holiday. In BC, you're looking at the province closing public schools, post-secondary institutions, and most crown corporations. Manitoba will be closing non-essential government services and offices for the day, but schools and childcare facilities will remain open and function as usual. Quebec, no holiday. Ontario, no holiday. Saskatchewan, no holiday. And no word out of Alberta 
just yet. So that story is going to relate to our daily polls, which you can find at Accessible Media on Twitter or Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Yesterday, we asked you, out of the world of entertainment, which entertainment awards show is most likely to influence your content consumption habits? 20% of you said the Emmys, 0% of you said the Grammys, 70% of you said the Oscars, and I'm sure Karen McGee voted because we had 10% saying uh, the Tonys. Karen McGee uh, voting early and often on that one. We had a couple responses in terms of the comments section on Facebook as well as on Twitter where folks were saying none, which also strikes me as reasonable. You are not sheep. You will not be led by these major award ceremonies, these industry award ceremonies. You are your own critical thinker and will develop your own tastes. We also had Leanne write in on Facebook. I don't watch any of them. I get recommendations from friends and family. That's fair. The question actually wasn't whether or not you watch the show. The question is whether or not the results might influence your consumption habits or nominations may influence your consumption habits. But still, fair. Friends and family oftentimes are going to dictate what you do or don't want to watch. Today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I'm not really asking you precisely about this stat holiday to mourn the Queen, but I'm asking you in general should there be more statutory holidays in Canada? Yes or no? I imagine there's a certain sense of a captain obviousness of, yeah, give people more time off. But, for example, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business uh, criticized the federal government on uh, yesterday and said provinces should not follow suit because the notice was too short for small businesses to get their affairs in order for a stat holiday on Monday. We know it can certainly create a lot of chaos when you're talking about who's off, who's on, what's working, where can I get groceries, can I get booze, what's the public transit schedule, do I have to work, is it provincial, is it federal, it can be a hodgepodge. So I think part of this question is also about the way in which we execute stat holidays. Because even in the month of February, some provinces are doing family day or whatever they're going to call it, family day or whatever other holiday on one Monday. And then other provinces are doing it later in the month on a Monday. We know certainly Quebec is its own unique culture. So you get Saint-Jean on the 24th of June, followed by Canada Day a little bit later. But then in August, you get the long weekend in a couple of provinces, but not in Quebec, but not in others. In Quebec, you get January the 2nd off, but no family day. It can get a little bit messy. My general feeling is one stat holiday every single month. One long weekend every single month. I think people would really appreciate that. I think that would really vibe on that. Now, I'm sure if you actually do the calculations, once you factor in the Easter's and the September 30th's and the Christmases and the Boxing Days and the January 1st's and the Family Days, I'm sure it works out to about 12 stat days. But I think we just need to get on the same page here and just do 12 stat holidays, all on the same days, we're all getting in line, and CESA, we're going for simplicity. Simplicity in communication. That's the new theory at Dave Brown Consulting. Let's bring in Alex Smythe. Alex, what do you think? Should there be more stat holidays in Canada? And what do you think about my execution strategy? Well, okay, so first off, I, I agree exactly with you at the top. Well, obviously, I want more holidays. Who doesn't want more holidays? Who doesn't right? want more holidays? Yeah. Uh, but I, I I agree that it has to kind of it has to make sense, and I think the biggest issue, especially with the context of what we're talking about with the uh, uh, the celebration of the the queen, we already have you know it's like it, it it's tough. I understand both sides of it. I I understand you know the government. Okay, we want to pay respect, but I was also not surprised to see. The provinces that immediately or or uh, were very clear, no, we are not going to celebrate. Okay, those were the ones that I kind of expected would would go that route. For me, I 
I'm always in favor of, of more holidays. I, I, I like your idea that it's like, okay, it's once every month or, or something along those lines where there's that kind of clear indication. But we also need to take in a, into account, as you had mentioned, you know, Quebec's its own separate culture. They have certain days that are marked for a reason in, in their calendars where that's not going to really be uh, something that's celebrated in BC or in the territories, things like that. So I, I think if we actually start to examine it overall and, and look at, okay, what what should we be marking as holidays? Why should we be marking ones as holidays? I think that's where you kind of get those uh, a bit more of a clearer picture because the last holiday that was introduced, uh, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, was controversial. And there was a lot of talk back then. It's like, should this actually be a holiday? Should this be marked or represented in some other uh, way, shape, or form? So, um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, more holidays are, are good. And it's uh, uh, we, we hear the benefits of having... Uh, less time in the office and, and more time to be out and about and celebrate the uh, the country we live in. Yeah, you mentioned September 30th. Some provinces still have yet to acknowledge that as a statutory holiday, so that's been a matter of conversation throughout the last year as well. I do empathize with anybody who says you can't you can't foist a stat holiday on somebody on three or four days' notice. It just it creates it creates too many scheduling nightmares for actual businesses. So I definitely get where the criticism comes in there. I just think you know there's a way we can do this to give everybody a long weekend once a month and I think that's going to be a good thing. I even I'm even willing to start considering the like saying there is nothing open at all. There is no work being done at all on these long weekends, but that's maybe an entirely different kettle of fish. Eliza Rocco, what do you think? More stat holidays and what do you think about the rollout and execution? A little bit less hodgepodge overall in the way we offer up stat holidays. Uh, a little less hodgepodge would be ideal, I think. Um, I definitely stand with Dave Brown consulting on this. I think one a month would be perfect. I did a little bit of research, and I think as it stands in Ontario, at least, we have about nine or ten. So we're just a little yeah, bit behind. Crank it up just a little bit more. Just give us a few more, and I'll be happy. But I agree. There, there was just, I don't think, enough time to declare one uh, in many provinces for Monday. Less than a week's notice for, the, for small businesses is a lot. It's a lot to ask for. Um, and I did some other research, and I found out that in Cambodia, do you know how many statutory holidays there oh, are? Oh, tell me. 28. That, that might be too many. <laughs> Maybe a little that bit. So we're not asking for 28. We're not asking for 28. You, I, I wonder where the number 28 came from. Came from. I would say maybe 26, right? One every two weeks. Right? That, oh, that would be glorious. See, now we're, but that we'd have to really push the Overton window. But yeah. thank you for bringing the Cambodia course, example. I believe in Ireland they have 15. Oh, I like that. I like I'll that number that too. too. Also, like minimum requirement of paid vacation on full-time jobs. It's like four weeks a year as well. Plus your, plus all your, all your stat holidays. It's, it's, it's good. It's good living in Ireland. I might, might be moving there soon. <laughs> let's, let's all go. Let's just move headquarters. Ooh, okay. I bet rent's cheaper. Eliza, thank you for this. <laughs> thank you. That's Eliza. What do you think? More stat holidays? And how would you roll them out to make sure it's more fair and equitable for everybody? Find us on social media at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Send us emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or you can always pick up the phone and give us a call. 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. If you do leave a message, though, one, give us permission to play it on the air. Number two, 
make sure the folks manning the phone know you're calling us. Say, hey, this is for Dave Brown. We need Dave to hear this. And I assure you, if you call me, I listen. Good listener. I know you only think of me as a talker, but I'm a very good listener. Let's bring in Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather updates. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland. It's periods of rain this morning and then turning to cloudy with a high of 15. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, rain and possible thunderstorms this morning, but in about five millimeters of rain expected, and then it will be clearing up with a high of 25. In Montreal, Quebec, scattered showers this morning, then a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 23. Uh, in Ottawa, Ontario, you can see a theme uh, forming. It's cloudy and then a 30% chance of showers this afternoon and a high of 19. In Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds and again, a chance of showers this afternoon with a high of 25. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's mainly sunny with a high of 16. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, same thing, mainly cloud, but this time it's mainly cloudy with a high of 18. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, a few showers this morning, but then it will be clearing up later with a high of 18. In Calgary, Alberta, a mix of sun and clouds with possible showers early this morning with widespread smoke that will turn to haze around noon. And an air quality statement is in effect due to the smoke with a high of 19. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly sunny with a high of 22. In Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's mainly sunny with a high of 16. In Vancouver, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds and hazy with again another special air quality statement in effect due to the smoke with a high of 21. And finally, Victoria, BC, a mix of sun and clouds and hazy this afternoon. An air quality statement is in effect there as well, and it's a high of 19. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the hour, but coming up next, Emily Maxwell from Real Abilities will share details about their new professional development series for filmmakers with disabilities. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. now with Dave Brown on AMI. We're just endeavoring to connect with Emily Maxwell. She's going to be part of this professional development for filmmakers with disabilities, part of the series being put on by the folks behind the Real Abilities Film Festival. But as we are indeed connecting with Emily, let's take a quick pause and we'll head over to Laurie Paris, who has your Canadian Press Morning Business Minute. A dismal day for markets on both sides of the border. The S&P TSX Composite Index recorded a triple-digit loss, down 341 points at 19,645. All three major U.S. stock markets posted their worst day since June of 2022. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plummeted 1,276 points to 31,104. 
The S&P 500 index fell 177 points to 3,932, while the Nasdaq Composite plunged 632 points to 11,633. Asian markets also skidded lower in the wake of Wall Street's drop as a report showed inflation has kept a surprisingly strong grip on the U.S. economy. Japan's Nikkei sank 796 points to close at 27,818. South Korea's Kospi gave up 39 points to 2,411. The Shanghai Composite Index lost 26 points to 3,237. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 75.82 cents U.S., down from yesterday's close of 76.28 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Lori Paris. Thank you very much, Lori. Starting today, the organizers behind the Real Abilities Film Festival in Toronto are hosting a series on professional development for filmmakers with disabilities. Joining us now to tell you more about it is Emily Maxwell, Program Coordinator at Real Abilities. Hello, Emily. Thank you for making time for us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So Emily, I know this can be quite a broad topic and there's a lot of things that I'm sure you guys want to do in terms of developing filmmakers with disabilities, but what is the focus of this series? The focus of this series is really for up and coming and emerging filmmakers who haven't had the same opportunities that non-disabled filmmakers have had in terms of the training and education that they can get. So we really wanted to focus on different um, programs and uh, sessions that were catered to folks with disabilities who um, maybe want to go sort of non-traditional routes into filmmaking. What are some of the particular sessions going to be addressing? I see a couple here looking at the uh, sessions that are going to be involved in funding. Why was funding such a critical component of this? It's a great question. So funding is something that a lot of artists, I think, struggle with and seems like a bit of a scary topic. And so we wanted to help make sure that it felt really accessible to folks. We have two uh, two sessions that are directly involved with funding. So the first is grant writing basics for beginners. This will allow folks to have the opportunity to learn specifically about writing a grant from the get-go. Um, turning their creative ideas into a fundable project. We will have Nisha Patel, who is facilitating that event, and we will also have Myron Kozak from the Ontario Arts Council to come and talk about what makes a grant application successful. And so this will be really helpful. I think grant writing is a scary topic for a lot of people. It seems really overwhelming. Um, as someone who has written a lot of grants, they are a bit scary. <laughs> and so we wanted to find ways to make this seem um, more approachable for folks. And then then we have a Meet the Funders panel. And so this is for different um, companies and organizations that have funding opportunities are going to come in and chat about the funding opportunities that they have available so that, again, up and coming filmmakers can learn how they can fund their projects. So we'll have folks from CBC, from Warner Bros. Discovery Access Canada, um, the Canada Media Fund. Um, so it's set to be a really, really wonderful panel uh, where folks will be able to get lots of information about how they can turn their projects into reality. Yeah, those are some certainly big names that can offer some big platforms and a lot of great advice. You may have alluded to it at the front end of that answer, but how complicated can that financial landscape be for people who may be so deeply focused on trying to create and release and really platform and share a big message. How much can that financial side be a big distraction from sort of their core passion? Yeah, it can be a huge distraction. It's really difficult, I think, for creatives to, um, 
you know, to have to sort of think in both lenses where they're, um, you know, they want to focus on the creativity of the project and they want to make sure that um, whatever they're making, a uh, short documentary feature film, um, is the best it can be. But then you sort of have to go into the, the you know, the money side of things, which I think for a lot of creatives can be a struggle. Um, and that's part of why we're trying to make it as easy to understand as possible. Along with this Meet the Funders panel, we'll also be launching a funding resource guide, which will be coming out in November, um, which will outline in pretty plain text a lot of funding opportunities that are available for filmmakers. And the goal of this is to just make these opportunities more easily accessible so that uh, folks are able to make the films that they really want to make. I know that you and your colleagues do a lot of great work curating films for and about people with disabilities. And certainly we've been covering the festival on this network in a series of iterations over the years, whether it be interviews or short features or even some documentaries. I'm curious how you feel the landscape may be shifting for filmmakers with disabilities all around the world. We, we hear a lot of talk now about inclusion and casting a wider net. Does it feel like that's beginning to manifest more for people joining the industry? I think it's starting to happen. I think we're starting to see this shift. I think at the same time, we're not there yet. And I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And that's why it's so great that Real Abilities exists. It's so great that AMI exists because we're able to, um, you know, to give these opportunities to these filmmakers who otherwise would not have the same opportunities. And, you know, it's really important for disability representation to be authentic. And so I think a lot of what we're seeing more in mainstream media is disability representation by non-disabled folks. And we really wanna change that. And we wanna make sure that disabled representation is um, coming from us, from the disabled folks, and that it feels authentic and genuine. Um, you know, the famous quote that everyone says, nothing about us without us. Mm. Um, and I think that really applies. Emily, I got a little caught up on the financial and funding and industry side of the conversation, but certainly there's going to be opportunities here from the creative point of view. So are there some other sessions that you are particularly excited about on the agenda? Yes. So today we have two really great sessions that I'm really excited about. The first is called Getting Started, Low, No Cost Introductions to Filmmaking. And so this is really a way for folks to learn about creative and innovative ways to start in filmmaking. And so it's um, we have Emily Schooley and Spencer McKay who will be leading the session. And they are two folks in the industry who are incredible and are going to be giving their advice on, you know, maybe some more non-traditional ways that you can get involved in filmmaking. Um, we'll also have uh, two representatives from the Liaison of Independent Filmmakers of Toronto um, who will come and talk about their resources and their creative funding opportunities as well. And this will really just give folks a way into learning about filmmaking um, in whatever way they feel works for them, because we don't think that there's sort of a traditional path you have to, to set for filmmaking. You can sort of do what you like. Um, and then later this evening, we have script writing, finding your ideal writing process. And we have an amazing panel lined up. We have Heather Taylor, who's moderating it, along with Catherine Hernandez, Natasha Ophili, and Julia Skikovich. And they are gonna talk about their processes of how they go about writing screenplays. And I think that that's gonna be 
a really fantastic way for writers to learn about um, writing processes and what might work for them and what might not work for them. Is it too late for people to get involved? I know the sessions are virtual, but is, uh, have, has registration already closed? Registration has not closed. Folks are still able to register and they can go to raftio.ca to head to the Eventbrite pages for all of the events. Um, they're all free and they are welcome to sign up right down to the last minute. <laughs> I noticed that this is a time when film is really front and center. My social media right now is blown up with a lot of stuff that's going on around TIFF. Is it a coincidence that this that this particular programming series is happening around TIFF? It's it's a happy coincidence <laughs> in that we didn't necessarily plan it to happen around TIFF, but when we were talking about dates, this week was proposed, and then we realized it would be happening around the same week as TIFF. And so we think that um, it ties in really well. Um, we think that for folks who maybe aren't able to get some of the resources, especially disabled folks that, that would like the resources available at TIFF, um, can maybe come and, and participate in our, our events as well and get those resources that they may be lacking elsewhere. Yeah, I know one of our colleagues, uh, Michael McNeely, is going to be uh, attending some of, these, uh, some of these sessions, and he's going to be uh, reporting back to us on Friday with what some of his experience was like and some of the things that he had as uh, big takeaways. I, I want to talk just very quickly about Real Abilities. We know the festival is probably still a little bit away here, but what should we be doing to keep Real Abilities top of mind, front and center here as as we start moving towards festival season for you guys. Yes, so our festival will be happening in May, May 2023. Um, and if folks want to stay updated, the best way is to follow us on social media. We're at RealAbilitiesTO on um, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and if you go to our website, you can also subscribe to our newsletter, which will keep you up to date on everything going on. And so. Our festival in May is sort of our main event. We're also doing a, a couple of, you know, off-season events like this September Professional Development Series, um, and that's the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing. And Emily, just remind us one more time: if folks are still interested in, in taking part in these sessions that begin today, where should they go for that? They can head to rafto.ca. That's r-a-f-f-t-o.ca, and head to our tickets page and register right there. Emily, this has been fantastic. Best of luck to you and your colleagues today. And I know a lot of curation is about to begin between now and May. So best of luck uh, sorting through a lot of amazing work that's going to be sent your way. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you. That's Emily Maxwell, Program Coordinator with the Real Abilities Film Festival in Toronto. The Professional Development Series kicks off today and runs until September the 16th. And as Emily mentioned, for more information, you can visit our a-F-F-T-O.ca, R-A-F-F-T-O.ca. Coming up next, we'll catch up with Clover Thursday. We'll chat about some DIY woodworking projects, crafts, how do-it-yourself can sort of influence and impact your creative experience. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I talked a lot about the wedding that I went to over the weekend yesterday. I promise you, 
that I'm going to stop talking about it. After this segment, because it really was a beautiful day filled with love and beyond the good eats, the drinks and the dancing, the wedding had a special vibe to it. It was very do-it-yourself. And that requires a lot of creativity and hard work to ensure the decorations and the venue have those tasteful DIY touches. A couple examples, homemade centerpieces, other flower arrangements, string lights, and even a shed that was built to house the bar. We're talking full-blown building of a shed, woodworking, carpentry. It was amazing. I emceed the affair. I used my talents in the way that I know how to use my talents. They didn't have me building anything, which was very smart. But it got me thinking, do creative people get roped into taking DIY projects from their friends? So let's bring in Clover Thursday to find out and find out what Clover thinks. Hey, good morning, Clover. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm I mean, wa- it sounds like you had a good time. I had a very good time. I had a very good time. It, it's made me very sassy. So that's that's what the world needs, a sassier Dave Brown. Uh, Clover, you are a very, very talented artist and a very talented designer. Do you find that your friends will reach out to you for some of their own DIY projects? Yes, I think it's just par for the course. <laughs> but, you know, I think a lot of people just are like, oh, if they know a creative person or an artist, they're like, oh, I, it's going to be my good luck charm. This is going to help me, like, my my project be successful. So yeah. I've definitely um, helped out a lot. <laughs> oh, and don't get me wrong. As a creative person, when someone asks me to MC something, like, I am I'm more than ecstatic to do so. Because if I can lend if I can lend a hand to someone who needs a hand, it makes me feel good. So what are some kind of projects that uh, your friends or family have uh, reached out to you for your help with? You know what's really funny? Ironically, quite a few things that have things to do with weddings. Like, I feel like weddings is a big DIY hotspot. So I've done some stuff for my own family. I did um, sort of designed and created, like, the gift box, uh, accepting box, I suppose, of my brother's own wedding. Um, I've done, like, design stickers and little, like, badges for my friends, like, bachelorette parties, things like that. So kind of like those those kind of design projects that are very wedding related, which is funny. (laughs) Why do you think that DIY aesthetic is so appealing to folks, maybe especially around weddings, bachelor parties, bachelorette parties, et cetera? I think it's the thing of like, well, first of all, it's it's cheaper. Like usually, (laughs) theoretically, (laughs) ideally. (laughs) Yeah. If you're about to pay a hundred dollars a plate to feed your friends, you know, maybe we can save a dollar or two. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something really, like, rewarding um, about, like, creating a DIY. And especially for, like, people's weddings, which is such a personal thing, or even just parties and things. Like, it's such a personal thing that, like, you have that, like, control when you're, like, making it yourself. Um, So I think that's why a lot of people are drawn to the idea of, like, DIYs and, like, you know, getting their friends together and, like, making it a whole process. And, like, I I, I get that. It's very appealing. Mm. I. I don't mean to imply that do-it-yourself is less formal or comes with lower expectations. Gosh knows, for somebody's wedding, you really don't want to be uh, mailing it in. But is there a sense of freedom when you design under sort of that condition, that space in the do-it-yourself DIY space? Yeah, I think so. Like, again, it's that idea that, you know, it's almost part of most of DIY's aesthetic that it's something that's done by hand and it's something that doesn't have to be absolutely perfect. And that kind of like those, those small mistakes can kind of show through. Um, and you know, it's a, a conversation thing, but I think that's why a lot of people just feel like a lot of freedom when they're doing it. 
Um, and again, usually because it's not ideally not too expensive, but I think it's that it's that idea that people just love um, a, like a making something and it's less pressure because they made it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, when I walked into that shed that my friends built, there's certainly some pressure there because you don't want the shed collapsing on people yeah. that's housing the bar. That would have really killed the vibe at the wedding. And, you know, when we're talking about building a shed, I mean, this was, this was like, it, it was probably like 10 by 10 or 12 by 12. Like it was big. It was wow. like a real project here. And as I mentioned, that is outside my range of talents. I did a little bit of woodwork in an elementary school, but I mean, I was making in little teensy tiny bookshelves like I wasn't building anything that had to be structurally sound have you ever considered learning a skill like woodworking or carpentry to tackle a, a massive project like that you know I I mean I always try like what any like any kind of medium like once um I funny enough I did try woodworking in high school because um I, one of my brothers is actually a carpenter um and he does a lot of like on his aside from making cabinets he does like a lot of like wood inlay and like things like that. It's very beautiful. But I was like, oh yeah, like I'm going to learn woodworking. And I swear I probably nearly like killed myself, like almost like <laughs> all, through, all throughout that class. But I, at the end of it, I made a little, like a little grandfather clock or whatever. And it was really satisfying and rewarding. Um, I don't know if I ever do to such a scale bigger than that, but definitely like having at least knowing my way around a drill is really nice <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, as I as I reflect on it I mean it was the 90s when I was in, in elementary school it was like 1994 <laughs> 1995 so it was it was a long time ago it was a different time but I'm still not quite sure exactly how we were allowing grade four and grade five students to like hang out in a wood shop with like power saws and power sanders and drills and even more particularly the blind student like messing around with the woodworking like I I, I think that like the lawyers weren't quite consulted properly on this front you know the 90s right yes yeah, the 90s a different time different time we were all just wandering about doing as we pleased uh clover what about some other forms of physical art as you said you're willing to try almost any different uh method a couple a couple times or at least once so have you ever thought about stuff like glass blowing or pottery anything like that absolutely and uh, i've done a little tiny bit of printmaking and screen printing and i'd love to do more actually but I think there's something just so I find personally so free, like freeing about doing like tactile art. That's really relaxing to me. Um, I think as someone with sight loss, sometimes it's just like it's nice just to have that that feeling of like working with something with your hands and it's very like touch led. Um, but I would love, 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 love to do pottery and try and tackle that pottery wheel and probably fling stuff all over the place. But it looks super <laughs> fun. <laughs> and, yeah, but yeah, I, I, honestly, I, yeah. <laughs> I was I was talking to some potters, potterers, potterers, potty, pot, potters, potterers uh, on the weekend, and uh, they were telling me they took it up during the pandemic, and they they live out in Prince Edward County now, and uh, they they said, oh yeah, I asked them, oh do you have your own studio? And they said, Dave, do you know what it takes to have your own pottery studio? Apparently, the drainage is very important, and I was like, oh, I never even considered that again as we go through this journey of of Dave being very unartistically inclined. <laughs> uh, Clover, you you used one expression there, and I promise you, last question, and then we'll let you go because I know you're busy today. Um. You mentioned screen printing. Is that like branding on, say, like T-shirts or even like other smaller items? Yes. Yeah, so that's kind of the that's kind of yeah the most like possible application of screen printing is T-shirts and tote bags. Uh, you can even like make pr artistic prints that way as well. So 
like it's a really cool medium that I would love to like explore more. And if I do end up getting a chance, maybe I'll actually share some thoughts about that later nice. down the line. Who nice. knows? And then we can <laughs> then we can screen print some now with Dave Brown t shirts. And then we can really then we can really get somewhere here on this collaboration. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Exactly. Finally paying off. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Clover, thank you for this. We always appreciate you stopping by the show. Enjoy the next couple of weeks and we'll talk to you. We'll talk to you down the road. Yeah, take care. Have a good one. That is Bye. Clover Thursday coming up after the break. Alex Smythe will be here. He's going to discuss me to he's going to join me to discuss his experience with the one chip challenge for the hashtag one chip challenge that's been trending on social media. And we'll talk a little bit more generally about spicy foods. But first. A Twitter executive has testified before U.S. Congress. Michelle Franzen has the highlights in Tech Trends. Twitter leadership is misleading the public, lawmakers, regulators, and even its own board of directors. Peter Zatko speaking before the Senate Judiciary Committee Tuesday, claiming widespread security failures at the company. Taylor Barkley of the Center for Growth and Opportunity says Twitter hired Zatko after several high-profile accounts were hacked in 2020. To really do a deep dive into Twitter's security practices and privacy practices, give an honest assessment. And you know, in his allegation, he's saying Twitter did not listen to or follow uh, what they hired him to do. And he says Twitter's problems might point to broader vulnerabilities in big tech. It seems that whenever the spotlight is shown on a company, deficiencies arise. It's really, really tough to do cybersecurity well, and it's really expensive to do well. With Tech Trends, I'm Michelle Franz and ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We have a sometimes adventurous crew around here, always up to something, running triathlons or going to see Top Gun Maverick 17,000 times or doing all kinds of other stuff to keep ourselves entertained. Well, Alex Smythe recently took on the hashtag one chip challenge that's been trending on social media and he's here to talk about his experience so alex let's start with the what what is the one chip challenge yeah well before i begin with that i mean i like how it's like oh some people are running marathons some people are doing movie marathons me it's it's about eating food I'm, yeah, yeah, that's, I'm, that's my go-to yeah i'm making seven team uh seven team football parlays uh wagering yeah. parlays so you know we all have our own hobbies <laughs> Um, yeah, so the what? the uh, So we are talking about Pocky, which is a, a chip company. And every single year they release this uh, kind of like advertising kind of campaign, viral marketing thing called the One Chip Challenge. So what it is, is they will package up and present this really spicy, intense uh, chip. And you only get one in a package. And basically the whole uh, goal is you, you eat it. And you try to last as long as you can without drinking any liquid of any kind to deal with the spice. Uh, yeah, so it's it's very rough. The problem is because it's a blend of all these different peppers and spices. There's no real like Scoville number number or like heat rating on the chip. But uh, reading online, they predicted this thing. Like, eh, you know, maybe it's we're using peppers that have 1.7 million Scoville, which 
if you don't know skill food units is really really (laughs) really hot yeah so we just we just showed a picture uh on screen that you took of the actual package of the chip which is a single chip in the package that is the shape of a coffin with a large red skull on it and it reads packy one chip challenge 2022 so alex tell me why did you want to do this what what came across your mind that said i want to try and burn myself well, so there were a few beers involved. Uh, that's that's always important. I, I don't think any any sane or logical person does this uh, regardless. Um, I was at a friend's place on the weekend, and one of our other friends showed up. He's like, hey, look what I got. I got the, the One Chip Challenge, which was like, okay, you know, I, I watch Hot Ones all the time, famous uh, YouTube channel, and they, they often do the One Chip Challenge. It's like, oh, you know what? I've always wanted to try it. You know, we'll see how it is, like... Uh, why don't we we try it out now i i should make it clear i didn't do the whole chip on my own because there was uh four of us who wanted to try it so we basically broke it into quarters and all tried it which i have to say in hindsight was a very good idea because i don't know if i could have survived the full chip on its own um but yeah and, and on the package itself what you also notice is that it is uh the skull has a blue tongue Part of why they have the blue tongue, it's a marker that when you actually eat the chip, there is a dye or something in the chip that actually turns your tongue blue. <laughs> so you can actually like show off and there's proof and evidence that you actually did eat the chip. Yeah, we just showed the picture of you with your blue tongue sticking out, yep. uh, holding up a sign saying I crushed the Packy One Chip Challenge. Although, Alex, I would say we should correct that to say it's the Quarter Chip Challenge, but that's okay. We, yes. we'll, we'll, we'll give you a pass on this one. Alex, are you someone who can generally handle spicy food? You know, I do enjoy spicy food. I, I would say it's typically, like, me actually eating it is perfectly fine. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll get a runny nose or, or watery eyes or something, but I, I still enjoy it. It's when it sits in the stomach afterwards. Uh, my stomach doesn't like it as much as my mouth does. So I I tend to, on occasion, go for something really crazy and spicy like the Pocky One Chip Challenge. But... um you know, typically I'll, I'll go for hot sauces or anything on, on a daily basis. So something not as hot, but I, I still like some spice in my food. What about you, Dave? I used to be a very heavy spicy food eater, but uh, my ear, nose, and throat doctor ahead of some surgeries a couple of years ago told me uh, you've got to be really careful with this. And certainly as I've gotten older, I, uh, I definitely feel that uh, I can sometimes do a little more damage than good when I'm going after the spicy food, but I still chase a little bit of spice. I particularly enjoy South Asian food, even more particularly Indian food. And typically when the restaurant sort of gives you the option of how hot do you want it, I'll usually land somewhere in the middle. Right, If there's a, a medium or a hot option, I try to land around there, not sort of the three or four categories beyond that. So sometimes there's sliding scales of sort of five to six options. I'll try to always land in sort of the second or third option. Or if there's the, uh, sometimes on the menu they have little peppers next to the food. So let's say that their maximum is four peppers. I will usually land at two or three, and I'll usually inquire just precisely how hot two or three is. So typically I do still enjoy spicy food. I like sriracha. I like hot sauce. I do, I guess, like I mentioned, I like spicier curries, but I do have to be careful because we've reached that point where I can only inflict so much pain upon myself. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm kind of in that same boat and it's always challenging when you go to the restaurant for the first time, because you never quite know how, hot those peppers actually are you know there's oh there's three peppers okay but is it actually going to be 
you know, is it going to translate to like an extra hot, like kind of equivalent of a hot sauce? Or is it going to be like, oh, two peppers equals like Frank's Red Hot, which is, yeah. in my opinion, not very hot. So it's, it's pretty it's bland, that salad pretty bland Frank, it, Frank's Red Hot, unless, unless they want to sponsor yeah. the show, in which case they're excellent. <laughs> You can put it on everything. That's the, that's the beauty of it, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Alex. When you when you'd sometimes get a little bit more brave, can you tell right away? Can you tell by the first bite? Oh, I've made a terrible mistake. Uh, it, usually, the first bite will be like, "Oh, okay, this has some heat. Okay, cool, cool, cool. That's fine. That's fine." And then it's usually the second, third, fourth one because, as you know, as a, a, a spicy eater as well, it's like it's not that first bite. It's the compounding of yeah. the spices. It, <laughs> yeah. It's the buildup after the first uh, uh, bite. But uh, going back to, to the chip, it, it's the exact same thing. Like it comes in waves and it, it doesn't settle. And so it just keeps building up and up the more you eat. Or in this case with the chip, it just, you know, it's there from the beginning. But yeah, it's it's that buildup. It's like, I, I'm fine for the first little bit, but it's once it gets to that peak that it becomes a problem. Well, Alex, I'm glad you survived the one chip challenge. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's Alex Smythe. We'll talk to him a little bit later in the show, but I want to wrap up this hour by sharing a couple of news stories. Let's take a look at what's going on around the climate change conversation beginning in Canada. The federal government says it will match Canadians' donations to help the people of Pakistan, where massive flooding has caused a humanitarian urgency. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau laid out the policy. The federal government will match donations you make to the humanitarian coalition up to $3 million until September 28th. These funds will help provide life-saving services to those in need. The United Nations has delivered a stark warning about global warming, saying irreversible climate catastrophe is looming. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez cites a long list of weather disasters. Heat waves in Europe colossal floods in Pakistan, prolonged and severe droughts in China, the Horn of Africa, and the United States. There is nothing natural about the new scale of these disasters. They are the price of humanity's fossil fuel addiction. A new report from the World Meteorological Oof, nailed that organization, says weather-related disasters on the planet have increased fivefold over the last 50 years and are killing 115 people a day on average. Gutierrez says the developed nations have not made the progress needed. The report is a shameful reminder that resilience building is the neglected half of the climate equation. It is a scandal that developed countries have failed to take adaptation seriously and shrugged off their commitments to help the developing world. And let's look at some of the environmental situations and conditions affecting California. There's extensive damage from flash flooding and mudslides in California. Search and rescue crews are still checking on residents. Reporter Kana Whitworth has more. In Southern California, widespread damage and destruction after torrential rain unleashed mudslides. A wall of water, rocks, and dead trees in Oak Glen, east of San Bernardino. It's just wave after wave after wave of mud debris coming down from this flash flood. Multiple homes and businesses in the area destroyed. The mud flows and flash flooding occurred in parts of the San Bernardino Mountains. And one more story. This one's a little bit lighter, but it's talking about the weather, so I connected it to these stories. Don't put away your summer clothing just yet. The Weather Network says there are still some warm days ahead. Allison Jones looks at the forecast. 
The network says in its fall forecast that much of Canada can expect warmer-than-normal temperatures this month before they start to drop in October. Chris Scott, chief meteorologist at the Weather Network, says September still has some downright hot days to come. Western Yukon is the only part of the country that's expected to be a little bit chillier than normal over the coming weeks. Scott says the amount of precipitation this fall will vary across the country, though most parts will see fewer storms than usual. Allison Jones, the Canadian Press. Got to say this morning, walking into work, it was about 14 degrees. It was quite nice. Didn't come in all sweaty. Felt pretty good about myself. Got to say, enjoy the uh, imminent fall weather. It's something that I always like. What's your favorite season? Let me know. Send me an email. Feedback at AMI.ca. Feedback at AMI.ca. You can find us at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, Accessible Media on Twitter, or you can give us phone calls, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, I have the regional news update. Brock Richardson will be here with a sports chat, and Alex Smythe will have your national weather update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, September the 14th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, we continue to introduce you to some new elements on this program, including a brand new columnist, Kevin Shaw. We'll talk a little bit about what goes into the entrepreneur life, but Kevin's an interesting guy with a lot of wide-ranging interests. So today we start in the business world. And you'll hear from a couple familiar voices, but in a new format. Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller will join me for a roundtable discussion on issues surrounding housing in Canada. But let's begin the hour with the regional news update. Starting in the territories where Yukon Premier Sandy Silver says he's ready to be known as just Sandy again. After almost 60 years in the territory's top job, Silver announced plans to step down as leader of the Yukon Liberal Party last week. He says it's not a decision that he made lightly. I often get the opportunities to do grad ceremonies. Of course, uh, former teacher at Robert Service School, and uh, you know, during the pandemic, you don't have the opportunity to gather. So this summer, you know, seeing the graduating class and only knowing about 20% of the families in the school that you know, I, I ran the math department, that was really a profound uh, moment for me about you know how I'm not as connected to the you know my best friends' kids in the community, watching them grow up in Dawson. Silver says he'll stay on as premier until the Yukon Liberals select a new leader. He also plans to hold on to the Klondike seat until the next territorial election. Over to British Columbia, where Health Minister Adrian Dick says it's been an unbelievably challenging time for the health system and the BC government is working to tackle staffing shortages and retain workers in nursing, emergency services and other medical professions. Dick spoke at the Union of BC Municipalities convention where local leaders described crises conditions that are closing emergency departments and delaying ambulance response times. I mean, the system objectively is doing more than it's ever before. More surgeries, more diagnostics, more primary care visits, more ambulance visits. All of it has gone up dramatically, but so is demand. And so uh, we're working hard and driving every day uh, to bring ch put changes in place that aren't just announcements, but are real change for people. 
Improving pay for paramedics and offering incentives for health workers to stay in the profession were among solutions pitched by a panel of experts at the conference. Over to the prairies, the Office of Canada's interlocutor for unmarked graves at residential schools is expected to wrap up its first national gathering today in Edmonton. Kimberly Murray was appointed earlier this year to work with Indigenous communities to help them search for unmarked burial sites. Her office set two days of meetings focused on efforts to recover missing children who died while being forced to attend residential schools. Residential school survivors and church representatives were invited along with federal government officials. Over to Ontario, where police in Woodstock say five people, four from Woodstock and one from Toronto, have been charged after a drug investigation. They say police executed search warrants on September the 8th, and police say they seized one firearm, fentanyl, methamphetamine, cocaine, crack cocaine, cash, and stolen property. The investigation is ongoing. Over to Quebec, where police in Quebec say 20 people have been arrested for threats against politicians or damage to election-related property since the start of the provincial election campaign. Some politicians say the situation is out of control. One candidate, Gilles Bilanger, of the Coalition Avenir Quebec, says his partner and children no longer stay at their home. That's on the advice of police after a car followed Bilanger home last week, and the next day a man was spotted on his property at 5 o'clock in the morning. And finally, into the Atlantic provinces, where Nova Scotia's mass shooting inquiry has heard from Indigenous residents who questioned the lack of a timely warning about the gunman in April of 2020. The inquiry was told the killer moved through two First Nations during the 13-hour rampage. One of those residents, Cheryl Copage Gahu, says residents, most residents, do not use Twitter, which left them vulnerable because that's what the Mounties were using instead of the provincial alerting system. She says the First Nation north of Halifax has since set up its own alerting system. That's your look at the regional news. Let's go from a bit of hard news to the world of sports with Brock Richardson. Brock, as always, lots to chat about today. Let's start and follow up on something that we talked about yesterday. The men's under-23 wheelchair basketball team did indeed have a little bit more action. They did. And first, I want to uh, just say that the uh, Wheelchair Basketball Canada website was a little bit delayed in, in putting out their uh, second round. So it came out a little bit later. And they were able to take on uh, South Ad- Africa and they won 71 30. And they will play France tomorrow for ninth place. So Good, good on Canada for being able to uh, more than double up a team because they have been doubled up more often than not. So it's nice to see them get a couple of wins before that long flight home that we discussed at length yesterday. <laughs> yeah, no need, no need to go too much further into that. But yeah, nice to see the guys still getting an opportunity to play a few more games out there at the uh, Worlds. Brock, it's time for our Blue Jays check-in. Since the last time we spoke, they've been picking up some wins and you have some thoughts. Okay, so I'm going to throw a stat at you because I want to know if you think this means something or not. The Toronto Blue Jays have only scored in the first inning two out of their last 19 games. Does that bother you in any way, shape, or form? 
In a league where you need to score runs to win, there's your captain obvious statement. You definitely want to do that scoring earlier than later, especially considering they are a high-powered offense. And one of their high-powered offensive players, Bo Bichette, is having a historic month of September. You would think that they'd be scoring more often in the first inning. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's that's a a very good point. And even though it is, you know, as you point out, sort of a captain obvious statement, I was surprised that, they are that low in the first inning given the top of their lineup being what it is. And I just want to also shout out, um, let's go with Boba Let's do it this way. Let's talk about Boba um, September. So he's got seven home runs, 21 RBIs and average slightly over, um, 500, one, six, seven on base percentage. Anything over one is, pretty significant so he's got a little over one which is important uh and then his slugging percentage again anything over one is pretty good and he's 1.128 for his september stats so it seems like when Bo goes so do the blue jays and we need that to continue the other thing that i wanted to hit on dave is that we now have five players who have got 20 or more home runs we've got george springer We've got Teoscar Hernandez, Chapman, Guerrero, and Bo Bichette, all with 20 home runs. And the significance is that nobody in the league has that except for the Toronto Blue Jays. So very high-powered offense. Yeah, a bit of balance there. It, and it lets you uh, – it really surprises me that George Springer's number is that high considering that he's missed time a couple of times over the course of the season. But that's, that speaks to what you may need come a playoff run – But, Brock, I want to backtrack to what you were saying about not scoring in the first inning. The one thing that I'm sure is making Blue Jays fans a little bit nervous is they don't seem to win easy. Even when they win a game, it seems like it's always a little bit of a slog. Yes, absolutely. And and, uh, before we move off the Blue Jays, I just want to shout out Alec Manoa, who clearly looked like he was feeling like garbage last night. He was not on the top step for... The uh, beginning portions of the game, he had a towel over his head. He went six and two-thirds innings and really was able to gut it out. And also, shout out John Snyder, who took out uh, their closer or brought in their closer for one extra out. And then the Blue Jays uh, ended up tacking on some runs. And in in order to save his bullpen, he decided, let's take Romano out so that we can use him later in the series. I thought that that was a really, really good play if you're if you're John Snyder. Yeah, the mercurial season of the Toronto Blue Jays continues. Brock, we were a little bit late on this one, but let's get a quick thought on the Montreal Canadiens naming Nick Suzuki their new captain, the youngest ever captain of the Montreal Canadiens at 23 years old. Yeah, I, li- I like this, this move, and there's so much in sports to chat about that sometimes I bring something just a couple of a day or so late, but I love this move. I think it's good. I think he'll serve as the captain for a long, long time. And they are in a bit of a rebuild, obviously. But I think they're going to get things going sooner than we think. I think that they do have talent on their team, and it starts with your captain. And I've had the opportunity to be captains on, on different bocce teams. And you got to lead by example. And I really think Suzuki is going to do that both on and off the ice, which is really important. 
It's a lot of pressure in a market that tends to tear apart their captains. He had a rough start to last year in terms of his offensive production. His new contract kicks in this year. He's now the captain. I think this could end up being a very risky situation, but there still is some infrastructure around him with Brendan Gallagher and Joel Edmonston, both veterans being named assistant captains around him. I think that's going to help and insulate, but it is a lot of pressure to put on a 23-year-old during a rebuilding time. But by all accounts, it seems like the team and the players are all the way behind him. So let's hope the city doesn't spend the next couple of years trying to tear him apart. Brock, and you've got to lean on, and you've got to lean on your assistant captains, especially when you've got veterans like that. And as a 23-year-old, you need to learn the ropes from somewhere, both and and have someone to kind of look up to. And I think this is what Montreal has done. But Montreal media, similar to Toronto, likes to tear people apart when they lose a game and it's just dangerous the media the fans the politicians have already started they've already demanded that he learn to speak french to be captain of the team it's it's it that it's it's montreal through and through but uh, good for nick suzuki as he is a really exciting young player in the league brock give me an update on what's going on with the davis cup i I've sometimes sometimes there's these sporting events that, that sneak up on me and in the tennis world the davis cup is definitely one of them yeah me too i caught on to it uh, yesterday so canada uh, took on South Korea. I'm not even going to attempt to say the athletes' names. We're just going to leave it at South Korea. Um, and we had an up-and-down day. Uh, Vashik Pospisil was able to uh, win his game. OJ Aliasim looked awful in his singles game. Uh, he, he got beat in straight sets quite handily. And then we played doubles. And in doubles, uh, they had a very... Very dominating second um, uh, final set, and they also won in uh, tiebreak as well in in the first one. This was a really solid game. The thing I need to see uh, better from OJ Aliasim is not so much throwing his racket at at balls, and he he's not moving his feet as much as I'd like him to. He's kind of st- standing still and saying, "Well, I'm going to throw throw my racket at it," and it doesn't look good i think that they could do better in this case but again they pulled out the win the second set was uh 6-3 and in this case it's kind of like a world cup dave where you get three points uh total in a day so each singles match has one point and then uh the doubles match has two so canada won the day and now they will take on spain on friday and then serbia on saturday with uh six points total up for grabs in both of those games and top two will go on to the quarterfinals, which will take place in November. I can think of a couple good tennis players who play for those two countries. So that's some exciting stuff on the hard courts. Brock, we got to get out of here. No time to talk about the Phoenix Sun and their own Phoenix Suns and their owner, Robert Sarver uh, being suspended from the basketball world. We'll pick up on that one tomorrow. You sir, have yourself a good day. You as well. Thanks so much, Dave. That is Brock Richardson. He was here for a sports chat. Let's bring in Alex Smythe to learn what's going on in the world of weather. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 25. In Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, there's showers this morning with 5 millimeters expected and then it will turn to a mix of sun and clouds with the risk of thunderstorms late morning, early afternoon, along with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of 23. 
in St. John's, New Brunswick. Showers this morning with 5 millimeters expected as well, turning to a mix of sun and cloud and possible thunderstorms into the afternoon. And again, wind gusts of 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 22 as well. In Quebec City, Quebec, the showers with possible thunderstorms this morning, then it will become a mix of sun and clouds with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers an hour and a high of 21. In Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds with the possibility of showers this afternoon and a high of 25. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's cloudy with the chance of showers this afternoon and a high of uh, 17. Oh, in Brandon, Manitoba, it's cloudy with a chance of showers this afternoon and a high of 20. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's cloudy with showers expected this afternoon and a high of 13. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of rain and thunderstorms this afternoon with smoke turning into haze around noon and an air quality statement is in effect with a high of 21. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 19. In Whitehorse, Yukon, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers throughout the day and a high of 15. In Kelowna, BC, it's mainly cloudy this morning with rain and possible thunderstorms expected in the afternoon. An air quality statement is in effect due to the widespread smoke with a high of 20. Finally, in Vancouver, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds and hazy and a special weather, uh, a special air quality statement is in effect for the area due to the smoke with a high of 21. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the show, but coming up next, we introduce you to our newest contributor and columnist, Kevin Shaw. You may know him from AMI's Mind Your Own Business. Well, he's now going to be a fixture on Now with Dave Brown. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. <laughs> Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We're just endeavoring to connect with Kevin Shaw. The gremlins are running around in our machinery today. It's just the way that it is. I do want to remind you that if you do hear something on the show that you like, or even if you don't like it, we want you to give us feedback. So you can always send us an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. We continue our trend of introducing new voices on this show, even if you've met some of them before. You may have met Kevin Shaw earlier this summer on AMI-tv's Mind Your Own Business. And by the way, you can find archived shows on AMI.ca in the AMI-tv app. Kevin has vast experience in technology, media, and business. So every, every few weeks, we're going to pick his brain about his experience and thoughts on a wide variety of subjects. Hey, good morning, Kevin. Great to chat with you once again. Hey, great to be on with you, Dave. So, Kevin, I'd like to pick up on one of the themes we discussed last time we spoke during the summer promoting the TV show, and that's being an entrepreneur. I'm curious, from your own perspective, what kind of experience have you had in the technology startup space? Well, I, I, I didn't set out to become an entrepreneur originally. I, I've, got a, uh, I've got a broadcasting degree from Ryerson and 
and uh, was really just set on being a music producer and, and a recording engineer and that kind of thing. And uh, I, I sort of fell into it by accident and, and started up a company called Tell Me TV, which was a video on demand platform with Describe Video. Um, and uh, launched that in 2016. Uh, the industry sort of matured around, around us and we, um, we ended up uh, sort of folding that down and, and uh, started up another startup called uh, MenuVox. And sort of in between that, I was, I was doing some intrapreneurial work, I guess you could say, with CNIB, um, leading the development of a, of a fully accessible iPhone game called the Venture Zone game, which was all about entrepreneurship and um, you know, looking, at, looking at ways to, to market that and, and running a national entrepreneurship program for, for folks with sight loss in, in uh, the entrepreneurship space and um, launched a... a Online philanthropic shopping platform for CNIB as well. So, lots of lots of experience that way with uh, with with tech and startups and that whole ecosystem. So, there's even just in that answer, there's a lot of ideas that are that are variable in the way they might be executed or purpose they might serve. Where do you start pulling the ideas from? How do you come up with these ideas as as an entrepreneur, even if it's by accident? Well, I, I, I always tell entrepreneurs when they ask me this, or potential entrepreneurs, people who say, hey, I, I want to go into business, and you know, what is it, uh, how do I start a business? And I always say the same thing, which is find something that irritates you so much, you can't help but solve the problem yourself. And uh, that's what happened with me, um, with, with my first startup, Tell Me TV. I was basically at home, I had a, and this is going back quite a bit, so, um, I was at home. I had a bunch of shrink wrap DVDs on my on my shelf, and uh, I was asking myself why I hadn't watched any of them because they um, they were all still in shrink wrap. They all had the de descriptive video track on them, and um, you know there's an interface problem with getting to the to, to the described audio track. Um, and uh, I really set out to to launch this uh, to launch this this company. And then uh, with my my other startup, MenuVox, I was basically at a restaurant waiting for a friend for, for, uh, for lunch and decided to like use the OCR on my phone to, to read the menu and that didn't work. And I decided to go on the, the, um, the restaurant's website and that became a cumbersome mess. And I thought, Hey, there's gotta be an easy way to do this. And that's really where, where those ideas came from. They, they came out of just being frustrated with, with being able to do things. Do you find there's a rolling stone effect that once you start finding yourself in these communities, you just feel maybe more inspired to keep launching businesses or trying to open up or trying to open up new ideas or partner with new people? Is there a rolling stone effect that occurs here? I'd say so. Uh, you know, there's the old adage of, uh, you know, to a uh, to a guy with a hammer, everything looks like a nail or, you know, to a lighting designer, the whole world just looks poorly lit. <laughs> Um, uh, so, so yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I'll, I'll just be in conversation with folks and we'll talk about something or have an experience. I was like, Hey, this would actually make a good business. And part of me will think about, you know, what's, what's the way to do this and, and, uh, you know, how many customers are out there for something like this. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of entrepreneurial thinking that I, that I bring to, uh, you know, the roles that I, that I'm in. Right now, I, I you know work for a bank, and and so there's uh, you know there's lots of room for entrepreneurial thinking, and and I think that's something that stays with you and and doesn't go away. 
What's the best part of, about being an entrepreneur? I'd say it's being the change you want to see in the world. It's it's um, you know there's definitely a there's definitely something to be said for uh, bringing something into existence that that's never existed before, and and that part of it is really cool and and seeing people. Uh, you know, get attached to that and, and say, hey, you know, you should keep going with this. It's, um, you know, that that's really the greatest part is to, to look back at something and say, hey, I, I built that or I made that. What's the hardest part? Uh, I would say, well, <laughs> for me, it's all the administration stuff because, <laughs> uh, you know, I find that side kind of boring. But but I, I, I think, honestly, it's um, it's... It's that that it's the failure. It's um, learning how to fail quickly and and fail productively mm. is I think, the hardest part. It, one of the things that I get attached to is uh, and and a lot of entrepreneurs who are starting out can relate to this is you want to get it right. You want to get it right the first time out of the gate. It's going to be a great product, and people don't realize is that you know a lot of entrepreneurs start out with a product that's pretty ghetto at the beginning. It's you know, it's held together with duct tape. It's, uh, you know, not very elegant, not very smooth, not very polished, but it solves a problem and people out there want that problem solved and they'll pay you money for it. And over time you, you know, you get to the point of, uh, you know, of let's say an Apple or, you know, a Samsung or something and it's, you know, it's new and it's shiny and it's got lots of flash around it and, and so forth. But, but in the beginning you're, 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 Building something that's really uh, that's really rough, so you don't you don't have to get it right when you're, you're an entrepreneur, but you do need to get it done. When we spoke last, we talked about some of the social media coaching that existed on the TV show on Mind Your Own Business. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how the technological landscape has maybe made it harder or maybe easier for someone to break into the business world, because to me, observationally, I would say okay. There's a lot of platforms to spread your message. There's a lot of places to get feedback. There's a lot of opportunities to learn from best practices. But I also feel like it's a real cluttered mess out there. <laughs> it's Here's the analogy I make. It's a lot like the music industry. And, and I can speak to this because you know, I used to produce albums and work in recording studios and stuff. Great fun. Um, you know, for those who can't see, I've got a big drum kit behind me and, you know, lots of music gear. My, my original career was, was going to be a music producer. Um, but in the age of garage band and, and, you know, everybody's got a laptop with garage band on it, uh, and they can cut and paste and, and move things around and, and make music. It's really hard for someone who's doing that just on their own to break through unless you're really excellent. And in the same way, especially in the tech space, we now have, uh, you can just go out, get a computer, a laptop, and start coding up a website right away or, or you know, making an app. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to succeed right out of the gate and uh, um, uh, find success uh, you know, in, in terms of building the next Facebook or the next Uber. Um, you've got to have a really great idea. You've got to have a really great team. You've got to have really great uh, execution, really great timing, and that that's hard. And and you're right, it is really hard to break through when uh, all of the tools are available to everybody all the time. 
as I mentioned off the top, Kevin, you and I are going to have a bunch of wide-ranging conversations over the course of the next yes. couple months together, which I look forward to. Maybe sometimes it'll be about music and media, sometimes about business and tech. We're going to run the gambit. But on your way out here today, anything you want to plug up? Anything you want to shout out? Uh, I've, I've got a website. If anybody wants to, to learn a little bit more about my background, it's just kevin-shaw.com. Uh, Shaw is S-H-A-W. And, uh, and then MenuVox uh, is uh, the startup that I'm working on uh, right now in the, in the background of <laughs> all of the other things that I'm doing. <laughs> and um, it's just MenuVox.com. And, and hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll, we'll have a beta out before the end of the year. You're a busy man, and we're very appreciative that you can make some time to talk to us. Kevin, all the best. Have a great day. Great. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. That's Kevin Shaw, one of the new columnists here on our show. Speaking of new elements on this show coming up next marco pasqua and elizabeth moeller some familiar faces and voices going to join us for a first ever roundtable conversation with them we'll talk about some housing issues in canada everything from affordability to accessibility all the important stuff here on now with dave brown on ami Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We're continuing to try new things here on the show. There are lots of pressing issues that are impacting people with disabilities and lots of perspectives to share. So let's talk about housing. If you are a regular viewer of the program or listener of the podcast, you know it's one of my favorite issues to discuss, probably because it's one of the most important things that exists. If you don't give people a roof over their head, it's pretty tough to build an effective society. So to help us through this journey are some familiar contributors to the show. You know Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller. So first we say good morning to Marco out there in British Columbia. Hello, Marco. Good morning, Dave. And hello, Elizabeth, out here in southern Ontario with us. Good morning, Dave. Nice to be with you this morning. So I sent you guys an article about accessible housing waiting lists in British Columbia that was posted by the CBC. According to the BC Housing Registry, nearly 4,000 people living with disabilities are on a wait list to find an accessible home. And an additional 1,087 applicants require wheelchair-modified units. I'd say these numbers are largely unsurprising. But Marco, what's your reaction to this story? Yeah, well, first and foremost, when I used to sit on the advisory design panel for the city of Surrey, we'd meet with a lot of developers locally. And it was funny because as the advisor for accessibility on that panel, we'd always get the uh, perplexed look from these uh, uh, designers or developers when they were in our meetings because I would say, well, we would love to have at least a minimum of 5% adaptable units. And they say, well, there's nothing really in the code that says that. I'm like, well, here's the thing. Adaptable units doesn't necessarily mean they have to be accessible. It just means that they're available to be adapted if somebody requires additional uh, changes that need to be done. And uh, it just seems like for developers, there's a lot of resistance there because they think that that's going to change the overall function, design, or even the sellability of some of their units. So that doesn't surprise me whatsoever, Dave. Mm. I do want to talk about code in a couple minutes here, but Elizabeth, I want to give you the same opportunity to react to the news story that I shared with you guys. 
The numbers don't surprise me. And, and when I was reflecting on Toronto and looking at our city, there are 80,000 individuals currently who have an application in for subsidized housing that are waiting. And that number is staggering and it's, it's going to grow. And you can actually see by quarter it's broken down. And what makes me, what really concerns me is we know, like you've said, the importance of housing, but we also know that if individuals are housed, they stay out of hospital, they stay out of long-term care, they stay out of the shelter system. And the concerning thing here is we have an aging population. We're all getting older. And so mm -hmm. if we think about the need for accessible and affordable housing, it's, it's only going to continue. We know that folks over age 75, 47% of individuals over age 75 live with some kind of a disability. And so I think a, a couple of reflections came to my mind as, as I was reading those numbers. What can we do as, as a society to encourage developers? Is there tax incentives? And what can we do to be sure that housing is affordable and accessible and really looking at what are the things we need to consider? I mean, 15%, only 15% with the Ontario Building Code, 15% of homes need to be made visitable. And that's mm. not even close to accessible. Yeah, that, mm, good that, point. Yeah, that's something we've explored quite a bit with uh, Thea Curdy of Designable Environments yes. uh, over the yes. years, talking about some of those numbers and some of those sort of institutionalized laws that we need to look at. I, Elizabeth, you mentioned cost, so I want to stay with you for one more moment here. How much do you think it is that overall cost ends up impacting the way we're perceiving uh, this overall shortage in the sense that all housing is so expensive. And then when we're talking about what would be more accessible or universally designed housing, typically that tends to be newer builds, which are even more expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's interesting, right? Because when we think about building something from the start, it's actually not more expensive to build something mm. that's accessible. Mm. What gets expensive is when we have to retrofit. Um, and so I think, and I think Marco touched on this, there's this sort of concern that if we build it accessible from the start, it, it won't be as desirable or it won't sell as well. But actually, that's not what the statistics are telling us about our, our population. Mm. And, and, you know, j just in terms of affordability, you know, in, in Ontario, the shelter cost that people on social assistance are given is $497 and ODSP is $1,179 and it's pretty difficult to find an apartment for under $1,179 in Toronto and if you do, you don't have much left over. Elizabeth, I, I'm, I'm glad you corrected me there because I definitely phrased that question poorly. But Marco, I want to give you the same opportunity because obviously we're here in Southern Ontario. You're out there in BC. These are the two most expensive markets in the country, arguably two of the right. most expensive markets on the continent. How much does overall affordability, do you think, cascading into lack of supply? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a major, major issue. I think that uh, uh, the housing market here in Vancouver is actually one of the most expensive in the world. It's been massively inflated. Um, you know, a lot of this has to do with uh, general, the idea that generally we're they're trying to pack a lot of us in into the condominium style units. Um, there's less and less residential homes. Um, and then, of course, you know, based on the median income that's in the area, based on the type of work that's available. So, you know, it's, it's a trickle effect. It's going to ripple and 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 affect every single person in the city. Um, I know that I have friends that have been waiting on that wait list uh, that you mentioned at the top of the show uh, for years now, and they still don't necessarily know when they're going to get that phone call or if they're going to get that phone call. So it does have to be affordable. Uh, I agree. Uh, I haven't been on PWD supports for years, but I know that there's no way that I could afford a place uh, in the general Vancouver region at all um, on the amount of money that's 
given uh, for people who require PWD support. So we do need to make a change. And there, I, I do have some ideas later on uh, in some of your questions on how we can kind of re resolve that. Oh, we'll open up Dave Brown Consulting in a second here. But Marco, I want to stay with you because you because you did mention that you've sat on some of these boards. Did we miss an, a huge opportunity? It really feels like in the last 15 years in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, there's been such an investment yeah. in density and new builds. Did we miss an opportunity to incorporate more universal and accessible design right there from the jump as all these new buildings were going up? Oh, 100%. I, I think uh, Elizabeth nailed it on the head, uh, you know, when, when she said, uh, essentially, you know, that idea that these adaptable or accessible units are unattractive, um, it's not true. A and, uh, you know, we're only going to get older, as she mentioned, right? So, um, you know, with the seniors population, you may not identify with having a disability today, but our needs adapt and change over time. And so if you build universally, it means that it's going to make sense for somebody today who has particular needs. Needs, but it also means that 10 years from now, it's also going to be accessible, read, ready, and universally designed for somebody who doesn't even know that they need it yet. And so by being able to build our cities with these types of thoughts in mind, it actually impacts everyone regardless of what their needs are today. So I think that more and more developers should be focused on that because they're going to be able to make money in the long term over time. Elizabeth, there's no doubting that downtown Toronto is a game of cones on even the best days and a lot of oh, those I cones. Got, I got that Dave instead of Game of Thrones, Game yeah, of Cones. Yeah we do that. I, we, I'm with you. We do that from time <laughs> to time. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if you have a thought on the overall missed opportunity that perhaps the last 15 years presented. I mean obviously we're talking about decades and decades and decades of missed opportunity but it really feels like in the last 15 years there was something there. Yeah, I mean, we had a federal election in 2019 here in Ontario. We had an election in 2022. And we keep hearing about promises for affordable and accessible housing, but we have really yet to see that come through. And I think in terms of missed opportunities, it's it's sort of this dichotomy, right? We have all of these people that are unhoused and we have all of this space and development that's going up. And not to get too much into the Dave Brown consulting, but you know, really try to think about ways that, you know, can we subsidize housing and put people together who maybe need support and people that are able to give support in co-op styles and what would that look like? So I think the problem is we're not looking to other countries. We're not looking to see what are they doing well in other countries, whether it's the Scandinavian countries and thinking about how can we support people to age in place and what would that look like? Elizabeth, I'm going to stay with you here because I know you want to talk a little bit about this, the student side of housing here. Uh, you've walked us through your experience as a student with some of your interactions with colleagues at school. What do they have to say about housing affordability and how it impacts their decisions in regards to academia or student life? So a number of my colleagues have not been able to move to campus or close to campus. So they may be commuting for upwards of an hour to get to class. And we know that that impacts mental health, physical health. It leaves less time for your studies, which in turn impacts your grades. We're also hearing a lot of issues around the safety of student rentals. So students who perhaps are new to Canada or who've never rented before are in situations that are quite precarious. So they may be asked for deposits up front by landlords or they're being asked for information that's not part of a, a lease or a 
tenant agreement. Also overcrowded housing, housing that's poorly repaired. And then we think about residents and the accessibility of residents. There are very few accessible residence rooms on campus and those that are there go to first year students. But what about second, third and fourth year and graduate students? Often it's a, a lottery or a wait list. And, and quite oftentimes too, folks have to move out in the summer. So again, you're bouncing around trying to find homes. We know that for, for youth with, with disabilities, eight, you know, ages 15 to 24, the most prevalent disability is mental health. And we think about how that's compounded by not having a safe place to live if you're a student. So, you know, I, I think there's a twofold problem here. I think our campuses need to do more to have accessible residence rooms and supports in residence for folks with disabilities. But I also think certainly more needs to be done around supporting uh, landlords to be aware of how to rent to students in a way that that's ethical in a way that's safe because we hear a lot of issues with folks not getting um, safe and affordable housing as students. Marco, there are no shortage of universities and colleges in your neck of the woods, UBC, BCIT, Simon Fraser. Do you have a thought on how housing costs are impacting the way students may be experiencing your city? Yeah, I completely echo everything that Elizabeth just said as far as, um, you know, the commute, uh, the the having to live go or go back home with the parents. But I want to touch on something else, the student life. Um, you know, if they're not able to live on campus, how is that impacting their personal and social relationships? Uh, you know, we, we touched on mental health, but I really think that the social connectivity is a really important thing, particularly for those with disabilities. Um, you know, because of your disability, you may have other factors in terms of your ability to make social connections. And we've already seen the impacts that, um, you know, isolation can have over the past two to three years here. So now compound that in an environmental and academic learning situation, um, it's going to, you know, experience, uh, have a different experience with these students in a completely different way. And it's going to impact the way that they see themselves and the people around them. So I would definitely say that um, for students in this area, uh, I would say that they're probably going through that. I myself, I'm not a student anymore, but I was at one point. Point. And uh, I didn't live on uh, residency when I uh, was in uh, school simply because it was cheaper for me to stay with my parents. But mm. I mean, now that was, I mean, we're talking uh, over 12, uh, 13 years ago. So, I mean, now it's even more impacted, especially with the cost just keep going up, especially in Vancouver. Yeah, there, there's no doubt to me that making sure the student experience and student housing is more representative and inclusive is really important. And I don't mean to imply there's some kind of silver bullet or like linear connection between, oh, go do post-secondary and you're going to be a success in life. But there is some evidence that suggests you are going to have more opportunities with more education. So if we're excluding people with disabilities right from the start on that point, right from the drop of being able to even get to a school or reside near a school, that is seriously limiting opportunities and perhaps only further perpetuating some cycles of poverty that we're already seeing. So I think it's a really important aspect to grasp at this. So here's where I just wanted Please, to really Elizabeth. quickly jump yeah. in and say that in Ontario, there are only a handful of schools, York, Seneca and Carleton, that provide attendant care services in residence. So that excludes a lot of folks with mm. physical disabilities that may want to live in residence but can't because they don't have the support. So I think that's a really important point I wanted to flag as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's a hugely important point. And because the issue is so important, I know uh, both of you have your own actual jobs where you work in consulting, but I'm making you a member of my company for a moment, mm, Dave okay. Brown Consulting. Elizabeth, starting with you, what would you try and do to alleviate the housing cost issue? So I kind of touched on it. I gave a little bit of a teaser, but 
we, we all know aging in place is the goal, but we all know folks need more help as they age or folks with disabilities that may need help. So what about looking at co-op styles where people who are able to afford can move in who have a, a disability or who are older and maybe need some help? And then people who maybe need a bit of a subsidy move in with the idea that they're going to help. So help might mean things around the co-op, like gardening and keeping the co-op maintenance up to speed, but it also might mean helping individual tenants. It sounds a lot, uh, probably there's a, there's a lot of complications to that, but I, I feel like we have these two populations and if we can bring people together in a way that's meaningful into community, that would be a great start. And then I also kind of think about, okay, what if in every condo building there was X number of subsidized buildings? And if a couple of folks with disabilities who perhaps needed attendant care services moved in there, we've seen this work before in pilot projects, then again, people aren't having to go so far afield for, for personal care and attendants perhaps can live in the building as a, as a subsidized rate as well. I think that's a really good idea because it speaks to the holistic nature of this. Um, I would like to see if governments are going to be throwing the weight of their money behind this, which a lot of them claim to be doing. I would actually prefer to see a large investment in high-quality rental property. I think the notion of, of strictly saying home ownership is the only way to solve the housing crisis is not the right way to do things. I think high-quality rental housing built near public transit that is built accessibly with universal design in mind, I think is something that can be significant. Now that's going to be a massive, massive investment. We would probably need hundreds of thousands of units across the country. But I think if the government is going to be pouring tax dollars money into this, which they are doing anyway, it should be about sustainable long-term solutions and maybe creating crown corporations where rent is tied to inflation or tied or somewhat tied to inflation as a way to, uh, to sort of ease some of these burdens. Marco, what about you? I know uh, you said you've got a couple ideas here to toss out as well. Yeah. So as an accessibility consultant, I'd be remiss to say that I think that all developments going forward through uh, municipalities and around the world should have a requirement of having an accessibility consultant on the team from the jump. Um, this way, uh, we're ensuring that the needs of persons with disabilities and the ideas and perspectives of universal design are incorporated from the get-go. Things like making sure that those adaptable units are actually assigned, uh, if possible, to people who need them, um, or at the very least, uh, you know, there's opportunity and flexibility to do that in the future. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is the idea of um, approval of modular home builds. Um, modular homes aren't actually approved to be built in all major cities. Um, uh, there's like code and, and regulations around that. Um, I think that that should be really re-looked re at. And uh, because modular homes can be built uh, to spec, um, they can be built uh, at a fraction of the time of your classic stick-build home, um, within about five months from uh, blueprint uh, to finished product, you can have a home built up. And those uh, modular homes are often wider rancher style. They can be one level unit for people with mobility challenges. And I'm not saying necessarily to be a home owner, but the owner of that unit could then have the, that unit be rented out if need be. Um, because modular homes, uh, I think, are kind of the way of the future. I know that we're densifying 
densifying our communities. We're densifying our cities with, you know, uh, you know, tall, tall buildings and skyscrapers and things of this nature. But there has to be a way that we can look at the size of our country. I mean, we have a massive country here in Canada. We have a lot of space and there is no excuse as to why we can't look at the way things have been done. Uh, Elizabeth mentioned earlier, looking at Scandinavian countries and other ways in which they're doing things around the world. There's a lot of wins there. So for me, uh, my huge win would be, uh, as I said, in modular homes and, and getting those professionals onto the teams from the get-go. Marco, Elizabeth, this is just the first of many that we'll do. We'll be doing this once a month with one another. Thank you both for engaging in this experiment with me. Elizabeth, have a great day. Thank you for having me, Dave. And Marco, you have a great day as well. Thanks, Dave. That's Elizabeth Moeller and Marco Pasqua. They'll continue to be on the show in their uh, older iterations. But yeah, once a month, we're going to get together for a little roundtable. And today we did something serious. Every now and then we might do something fun. And there's one more roundtable coming down the pipeline with a few characters that you may know. But we'll save that information for a little bit closer to when we gather. Coming up after the break, we'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Company with Ramya. And we'll also check in with Alex and Nazreen. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI Audio on AMI TV. Let's start by bringing in Ramya Amuthan to find out what's coming up on Kelly and Company this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Morning, Dave. So, Ramya, what's coming up on the show at 2 p.m.? Okay, we have In the Know with Margaret Weldon, and as the queen, the passing of the queen, all of that is really top of mind for us right now. She's going to give us a deep dive into the queen's life. Uh, So, you know, everything from her birth to her family to anything and everything else that we can find out about the queen, uh, that is what's going to be on in the know. We're also talking about sepsis with our registered nurse, Leslie DePoe, because this is a word that we may know about, maybe a condition that we may know a little bit about, but she's going to really give us the deep dive because it's um, sepsis awareness day in Canada. Well, it was yesterday. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Also, the University of Saskatchewan is launching, has recently launched a suicide prevention program. And Jim Crisco is going to fill us in on this initiative. Sounds like a good show, Ramya. Before you go, though, I have to ask you a question, and it's all spawning from a news story here. So let's play it to set it up here. We have Starbucks. We know them, the coffee shop. They're planning to spend $450 million to revamp their North American stores. Norman Hall brews up this report. Oh, I don't think Norman... I don't think Norman's... stores more efficient. Norman. The company says there's growing demand for new types of service, including drive-through, mobile ordering, and delivery. Drive-through now makes up about 50% of U.S. sales. Changes will have to be made to hot drink workstations to handle the spike in cold drink sales. Around 300 worker union protesters picketed outside of Tuesday's Starbucks investors meeting. I'm Norman Hall. Now, of course, Ramya, some of that money is going towards trying to improve the experience of the employee. But I'm curious, as a consumer, now this doesn't need to just be this one particular coffee shop in general, but what do you think a store can do to make you feel more comfortable and welcome to give them your business? Question, especially pertaining to Starbucks, because Starbucks is totally about that, right? They like 
scream your name and they welcome you in and they send you off feeling good. You you get a five-star experience walking into Starbucks and you pay five-star prices. So I think that I'm curious if they start putting more money into drive throughs and all these other things, is there going to be a lack of that um, customer service? I, but I feel like that's an understatement that you get with Starbucks or is that going to stay the way it is? And that's what I'm a bit worried about you know starbucks mm. has a very good reputation for making you feel nice and bougie when you walk in there is that going to change because they're putting money into all these other things and trying to ramp up their you know it's it's what they offer even though a lot of people are definitely using the app to order now it definitely is not one of those places that has the big digital ordering screen right no. and that big digital ordering screen is something that i typically enjoy because i like that if i'm doing something really really quick i can punch three buttons boom i'm in i'm out i'm picking up my stuff but as you say, the personal connection really matters there. It's one of the few places where you will on the regular interact with the same barista or same cashier yeah. every single day and develop a little bit of a relationship. But Ramya, if I'm going to broaden out the question a little bit and say what would make me feel better, I cannot tell you how many places I walk into where it's not clear where the line starts, where I have to oh, order, yeah. where I have to pick up, how I have to pick up, whether or not they're going to yell my name when my thing is ready. I just feel like a lot of these places don't take that attention to detail and that care to make me feel welcome. That if I feel it's too chaotic, I'm just going to walk right out. Yeah, absolutely. Or you're just not going to go there next time, right? And I've totally experienced this at a lot of fast food, especially because it's busy on top of everything else that you just pointed out. So I, I totally agree, Dave. I think that um, lineups and all these things could be better. But, you know, that's just me talking about accessibility all the time. You're talking about ordering screens. I'm like, I never want to deal with these. I just want to <laughs> talk to a person and let the person do the thing that I need to get my stuff and get out of there. Um, but yeah, Starbucks has always made me feel nice. Maybe because they say my name. I don't yeah, know. There's some and, good tactics. And, and do they say it correctly? Yeah, they're pretty good at there it. There you go. All right. Yeah. They're better than me. Hey, Rumya, have a great, have a great <laughs> show. Have a great show today on, on the air and I will see you around the building. Okay, you're pretty good, Dave. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> That's Rami Amuthan, <laughs> the co-host of Kelly and Company, which comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. That's all the time we have for the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.